ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jen Lee. Figuring out how to deal with youth offenders is a problem for all Australian states and territories. But over the last couple of years, Queensland has been grappling with a growing sense of crisis around the issue, rising crime rates in certain areas, but also a perception that not enough is being done to keep the community safe. In this state election year, law and order is a hot-button issue, with young Queenslanders linked to a string of alleged high-profile crimes in recent years, ranging from the fatal stabbing of a grandmother last week, another earlier stabbing of a woman during a home invasion, and the killing of a couple and their unborn child by a teenager in a stolen car. On Rear Vision this week, we're examining the evolution of juvenile justice, specifically the use of institutions to reform and punish children. What lessons can we learn from past mistakes and what mistakes do we keep repeating? The idea of establishing separate institutions to deal with children that were committing offences emerged in the 19th century. We're going to focus on the US to begin with, but many of the changes in thinking were happening across Anglo-Western countries. Cities like New York were growing rapidly with a massive influx of migrants, and a lot more children were being severely impacted by poverty. Daniel McAleer is Executive Director of the Centre on Juvenile and Criminal Justice in San Francisco. It starts in New York, and it's a group of elected officials, business leaders, religious leaders, and many of them had been involved in the penitentiary, the adult penitentiary movement, which preceded it. And there was concern about the growing number of children on the streets, wandering the streets, impoverished, barefoot. It was also the concern over the number of kids who were children who were being held in adult jails and prisons because there was no other place. So what was happening is you had these kids who are out on the streets and they're being arrested and they don't really know what to do with them. So they're putting them into adult jails. And that was recognized even back then as not a good idea because they become victimized or they're made worse. It was out of concern for the plight of mostly immigrant children. In fact, they instituted a tax on immigrants at the time as they were coming off the ships um, in order to fund the House of Refuge because it was going to be their children that were going to be housed there. And make no mistake about it, it was, uh, it was a place of involuntary confinement. Originally, a lot of the people that advocated for the creation of the House of Refuge, as I said, came from the penitentiary movement. And they believed that, well, where the penitentiary had gone wrong, was it targeted the wrong population that, uh, you know, it, it didn't work with recalcitrant adults who might have been steeped in their criminal ways, but it would uh, perhaps work with children, they naively thought. This reform movement wasn't just about dealing with children who committed offences. The idea was to intervene early with the aim of correcting kids before they descended into a life of crime. They were called houses of refuge. What's phenomenal, Jen, is how quickly it became a movement, how quickly it took off. It was seen as you know, the march of civilization, that the state is the ultimate parent. And so the House of Refuge became a movement. And within a year of the opening of the New York House of Refuge, Boston opened theirs the following year, and then Philadelphia opened theirs, and then Baltimore opened theirs. You had about 25 of them 
around what was then the United States by 1850. And that became the backbone of the entire child welfare system. So you had the combination of abused and neglected kids, the kids who were the victims of poverty. And they were actually the majority. And then you had a few kids who had committed relatively minor offenses. And they would be seen as children in need rather than children to be punished. We still put kids into the adult jails and prisons if they, if they committed crimes. But the House of Refuge represented kind of a, an institution that housed the children that fell between the orphan and the criminal. And so the House of Refuge kind of represented an expansion of a state authority over a new population of kids, the, the abused and the neglected, the needy, the child wandering the streets, unsupervised and uncared for. The average number of young people in a House of Refuge was around 200, but some, like the New York House of Refuge, was home to over 1,000. And these institutions quickly confronted the same issues that plagued adult prisons, overcrowding, terrible conditions and staff abuse. Despite all the lofty pronouncements about the purpose of the Houses of Refuge, they really didn't live up to expectations because it was supposed to place children on the life to responsible adulthood, where their natural parents had failed in that endeavor. Uh, Now the state would step in as the ultimate parent. Unfortunately, the state proved to be a lousy parent. Children were routinely abused. You had children of all ages, and older kids beat up the younger ones, and uh, the staff took advantage of many of them. When they rebelled, of course, the staff react. They descended into abuse very quickly. By the 1850s, these houses of refuge in the United States had a very bad reputation. Multiple investigations exposed the appalling conditions. The model clearly needed an overhaul, and this led to the next evolution in dealing with juvenile offenders, reform schools. But it was more of a rebranding of the House of Refuge. Not much about these institutions changed. Christopher Cunning is Professor of Criminology at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education at the University of Technology, Sydney. Australia, the US, Canada and the UK introduced industrial and reformatory schools at around the same time. It's reflective of ideas, particularly the industrial schools and the reformatory schools, around punishment, penalty and prisons more generally. The whole kind of reformatory movement was what gave rise to what we understand as, you know, sort of the modern prison as a a way of rehabilitating and reforming individuals. What was happening in the children's area was, in fact, an extension of that, you know, that it was around the idea of being able to reform the individual rather than simply punish them. These reform schools housed a combination of children who had committed offences, children who were deemed at risk of committing offences, and children that were suffering abuse or neglect. There was the idea that because you were reforming the child, you didn't have to sentence them in the same way that you would an adult. There was the the idea of indeterminate sentences. And so children were held in institutions for long periods of time, unrelated to the offence that they had committed if they were going in as committing an offence. And so this idea of an indeterminate sentence, because you were doing it for their own welfare, for their own good, meant that you didn't have to sentence them for, say, two years or three years or whatever. They were placed into the institution until they were reformed. And so then what that meant was that there was a great deal of administrative discretion as to when they were released. So it became the role of the governor or or the superintendent of the institution to decide when a young person should be released. You know, within 
20 or 30 years of those institutions being set up, there were inquiries into the conditions of the reformatories and the industrial schools. So it's quite clear that the kind of ideology or the idea of reform was clearly undermined by the reality of what it was inside the institutions. And so uh, 1870s, 1880s, there were inquiries into the reformatory schools and industrial schools in South Australia, New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania. So within, you know, within decades of them being established and they were, you know, the, the picture was that they were brutal brutal jails, described as brutal jail. Alongside the reform school movement, the first children's courts were established in the US, UK, Canada and Australia in the very early 20th century, with the idea of providing a more appropriate forum for dealing with juvenile offenders procedural formality, that you pay greater attention to the you know, social background issues of the young person that's there. It needs to be put in that context of the sort of scientific frameworks of the growth in terms of psychology and so forth as a discipline, which also influenced this idea that you could have a court system that was a therapeutic court, which is obviously still around today, that you, you, know, you could look at the social background of the child, you could introduce mechanisms or processes or systems of support that would help them. I want to tell you about a particular case that was heard in a children's court in the early 1960s. It's an example from the United States, but what happened to this child was quite extraordinary. His case went all the way to the Supreme Court and led to some fundamental changes in how US juvenile courts operate. Did they tell you what you were charged with no. when they grabbed you? No. Did you see your parents before you were taken before the judge? No, ma'am. So it was a week before you saw your parents? Did you see a lawyer during that time frame? No, ma'am. When you got to the courtroom, what did you think was happening? At that time, I was 14, you know. I, I didn't know. Did he ever say, I'm charging you or convicting you of making a lewd phone call? Oh, that, that he did. Were any witnesses brought before the court? No, ma'am. Jerry Galt was a 14-year-old living with his parents in the 1960s. He was accused of making an obscene phone call to a woman. Bear in mind, if Jerry was an adult, he would have faced a $50 fine and a maximum sentence of 20 days in jail. The kid gets arrested. He's brought to a detention centre. Parents are not notified. Or the parents find out about it through, you know, by asking around. They, well, I saw the police here and I think they took your kid. And that's how they found out. And so finally, that night, they got him released. Well, OK, so the kid goes back to court two days later and the judge says, OK, come back in three weeks. Kid goes into court and the judge comes out and announces that uh, based on his review of the case, that the kid's on the path to delinquency and orders him committed for the duration of his, his minority to the Arizona State Reform School. So he could be held until the age of 21 in this horrible prison-like facility, the Arizona Reform School. And so he was committed. And two years later, when this is making its way through the courts, he's still there for that one, for, for that one phone call. And... Um, and this is really the granddaddy of all juvenile cases. And this is where the Supreme Court declared that, you know, from now on, that due process protections had to be extended to kids. And the Galt case was really just embodied all the problems of the juvenile court and what happens when you extend unfettered discretion to people in power and authority, where there's no accountability and no guidelines. And that's what was going on in juvenile courts. 
Children could be put in an institution for committing status offences like being uncontrollable, exposed to moral danger or truancy. The persistent idea was that these places could divert children away from crime and provide protection. Good enough ideas in theory, but the reality was often horrific for children. Debbie Kilroy runs Sisters Inside, which advocates for the rights of women and girls in the criminal legal system. People sometimes think they have good intentions, but their intentions usually come from a very privileged upbringing in many cases and are making assumptions that the way they live their life should be the way others live their lives. And that's not a reality if you can't and don't have the resources to do that. And uh, particularly when that's projected onto Aboriginal families and communities. In 1973, when Debbie was 13, she was sent to the Wilson Youth Hospital in Brisbane. At the time, Queensland had something called the Juvenile Aid Bureau, set up to combat delinquency in children aged 5 to 15. Juveniles who were misbehaving, right, and needed protection of the state. These were the group of people, um, police and social workers, that convinced my parents, because I was wagging school, truanting, that I should be locked up in a children's prison, which was otherwise called back them days um, Sir Leslie Wilson Youth Hospital. It was called a hospital. It was never a hospital. It's not a detention centre. It's not a reformatory. It's actually a prison because you can't come and go how you like. So um, in that era for me back in the 70s, was it was called a hospital. Dad signed me away to um, be taken by the police one morning because, you know, adults are telling me all the time, go to school, go to school. So this day I'm dressed in my school uniform to go to school and then the police come up the back stairs and appear at the back door and said, you've got to come with us. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to school. And they're like, no, you're coming with us. You're not going to school today. It's like, oh, my God, you adults make no sense, seriously. But they actually take me to prison in my school uniform. So I landed at the children's prison as a 13-year-old for truanting school. And then it's just a massive slippery slope. All of us girls were in there, obviously a lot of Aboriginal girls. There were girls that were seriously unwell, that really did need to be in a proper hospital. You didn't go to court. It was the psychiatrist that used to come to the children's prison would decide how long you would stay there and when you would get released. It wasn't like you were remanded in custody for committing a quote-unquote criminal offence like it is now. It was because, you know, basically for your so-called care and protection, we're going to lock you in a prison. Debbie was initially sent away for four weeks, but ended up staying much longer. My parents weren't educated people, and so they believed someone with a, a, you know, a degree, a social work degree, or the police for that matter. So they thought they were doing the best things by signing me away and putting me in a children's prison to work out why I was, um, you know, running away from home and not going to school which most children do, can I say? It's just normal behaviour. And what I found as a 13-year-old right through till, you know, I was nearly 17 in and out of that prison, that's who all of us girls were. Mm. We were girls who um, were come from very poor families. Um, we were girls, Aboriginal girls. School didn't engage us. We were excluded from school. They didn't want us in school, um, you know, and so we become tar- the target to be criminalised and locked up and then pipelined into the adult prison yeah. system. That's if you survived and didn't die. So four weeks comes around, you know, mum still says today, 50 years on, they still got no report from, you know, the state, from psychiatrists, etc. but they wouldn't let me go home. And it took me decades to do my own healing work 
to believe that I wasn't bad. Like I was told, because my father died suddenly when I was in the children's prison and the matron came into isolation because I was always lived in isolation and they would um, medically restrain me. I would be on medication to knock me out. I would get needles to so and be restrained. And this is the treatment. And when my father died, you know, I had to go down the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist wanted to tell me something. I thought, well, two things were going to happen. He was going to tell me I'm going home or he's going to tell me I'm staying longer, right? Because that's that was the role of psychiatrist, nothing else. Mm. And but he told me that my father had dropped dead early hours that morning. And I freaked out as a 14-year-old. And then I was dragged physically back into isolation. And then the matron, the head of the prison, came in and told me over and over again that I killed my father. Oh. So that that belief then became I'm bad because these adults told me. And I'm so bad, I killed my father. So all I can do is behave in a bad way. And that is exactly what we're doing to our children today. First Nation children are massively overrepresented in youth justice systems across Australia. They were also subject to horrific institutions, but until the Aboriginal Protection Act was finally repealed in the late 1960s, they were kept separate. And of course, the state also had the power to remove children from their parents at any time for any reason. I mean, the system was so different, at least up until the late 1960s, in the sense that you had a separate system of, of penal control, if you like over Aboriginal kids that was through protection legislation and specific institutions for um, Aboriginal children. Under the protection period, the reservations on which people were placed or kept or held had their own system of control in the sense that the, the local superintendent or manager had a great deal of discretion in relation to how a kind of localised, if you like, justice system operated. So they had their own local police as well as, uh, you know, lockups in, on many of the reserves. That was kind of a separate system and really until the demise of the protection period. But, of course, the other thing too, which needs to be said here, is the whole phenomena of stolen generations, which, again, in terms of child welfare, had legislation that specifically allowed for the removal of Aboriginal children and didn't require the same level of judicial scrutiny in terms of actually taking a child away. Beginning in the 1970s, although it didn't really start properly happening until the 1980s, was a movement away from these large institutions. The ideas of the 1970s, which really became influential in terms of practice in the early 1980s, around deinstitutionalisation, decriminalisation, which affected a whole range of areas. I mean, the treatment of people with mental ill health and disabilities is a, you know, a primary example. And so the reform process that occurred in the 1980s was very much about closing large institutions and looking at other and care and protection and, you know, so-called welfare institutions and juvenile delinquency institutions were reduced, were closed. The rate at which institutionalisation for criminal matters occurring in New South Wales dropped by half between around 1980 and 1983, 1984. So we did have a massive deinstitutionalisation process in terms of getting kids out of youth detention centres, either for welfare matters or for criminal matters. The approach since the 1980s has been about keeping young people, especially first or minor offenders, out of the formal court system for as long as possible. 
William Wood is a senior lecturer in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Griffith University. Police are much more diversionary today than they were a generation or certainly two generations ago. The reason for this is because there was you know, a large amount of research beginning in the 1970s, really, that showed the majority of young people are what are called adolescent limited offenders, right? They have a, a, a peak in usually in their late teenage years. And then by their mid-20s, they've kind of, you know, began to live the same boring lives that the rest of us do, mm. right? The problem with putting them in the youth justice system is that you actually encourage a criminal career. The idea of diversion has still been maintained to a significant degree within the the sphere of children. So the idea that it's a good thing, you know, to divert children away from the more formal reaches of the justice system, and, I, and that still has some purchase, except, you know, there's a massive over-representation of Aboriginal children in the youth justice system. The number of, of children institutionalised or placed in detention centres in Australia, you know, it's quite good in terms of comparatively... But there's a huge caveat, and that is the massive overrepresentation of Aboriginal children. And so what you have in Australia is this bifurcated system where it's highly oppressive for one group of kids and actually doesn't actually lock up that many non-Aboriginal children. So what's an example of how the system might work for a young person today? Keith Hamburger was Director General of Queensland Corrective Services in the late 80s and 90s. Police arrest people, children, take them to a watch house, bring them before a court. The court then uh, has a few, op- very few options. And this is, we get a lot of criticism of the courts, but sadly we haven't provided them with the tools. Mm. So what happens with the child is, uh, depending on the crime, it could be it's a heinous crime, though they can't be allowed out in the street, so they put them into a youth detention centre, which is a jail, and then they have to uh, appear before the court. At the moment, a large number of our children are on remand, waiting a court appearance. There's a backlog. So they spend quite a bit of time on remand. And then the magistrate really only has very limited options. Serious crime, they'll go back into the detention centre and some will stay there for a long period. But when we come to the less serious crimes, there's very limited controlled therapeutic options. They might get a community order of some sort. But if you look at the statistics when police arrest young people, and I see it time and time again, um, you see in the media the offender was known to police. So these are children that have come out and then haven't coped and whatever and back into the crime. So we're just mirroring the adult system, expecting them to come out and be controlled. But impulsive young children, you can't do it that way. The problem of children being on remand while waiting for their court date isn't unique to Queensland, but it's gotten a lot worse since the state brought 17-year-olds into the juvenile justice system a few years ago, in line with the rest of Australia. A good thing, but it had some unintended consequences. Catherine Hayes is from the Youth Advocacy Centre. The movement of the 17-year-olds into the youth justice system was done on the basis that there would be a high level of diversion of kids from the youth justice system and that the kids would continue moving through the courts pretty quickly and that there'd be um, bail granted wherever possible. So those three things have reduced in recent times. There's been less police diversion. The kids move through the court system really slowly, which increases the remand numbers, which increases the detention centre capacity. Um, and, and then the third factor is the 
reduction of bail. So there have been laws introduced in Queensland where, which has made it much more difficult for kids to get bail. So these three factors have meant that the detention centres are much fuller than they were ever intended to be. Every summer, we have a situation where there are up to almost 100 kids held, some of them held for up to four weeks at a time in adult watch houses, which is just a concrete cell, concrete bench, open toilet and a basin and nothing else. Teenage boys in there for weeks at a time, so they're behaving badly, which is completely foreseeable. Nothing you can do to assist them while they're in the watch house. It's really difficult because logistically you can't move them around easily, so they're stuck in their cells. We still keep this institutionalised approach where we believe we must have mini jails, if you like, youth detention centres designed like an adult prison, concrete cells and all that sort of stuff. And all the literature, evidence, practice shows that if you're dealing with problematic people, the best uh, way to do that is in small numbers. Very dysfunctional children, you shouldn't be working with more than six at a time. Uh, You can get up to about a dozen depending on circumstances because these children need very individualised attention. We all need discipline when we're growing up, but we also need love and we need support. Once the child gets into that institutionalised situation, They meet many other antisocial young people. They become friends with them. They've suddenly got a bad peer group when they get out, and so you have lost them. And that's why 90%, as I said, sadly at the moment, go into adult jails. Mental health services for those children are very scarce, Um, and just having a loving, supportive environment for them just doesn't exist. We've got kids 500 metres from here living under bridges. Those are the drivers of juvenile crime. So... When you hear politicians talking about harsher punishments, they're missing the point. Uh, we need to control those children. But we need to then provide an environment where we, under that, in that controlled environment, provide ways to make them follow pro-social behaviour and feel a valuable member of the community. We don't say that it's okay to be violent. We advocate very strongly against violence, but it's how you do that, right? If someone has been violent, yes, they need to be removed from the community so that they're not violating anybody else. But by putting them in a watch house where they have nothing and they're being mistreated and don't have enough food to eat, girls aren't given underwear, where they're then put in a children's prison and told how bad they are and being violated there, we need to remove the children out of the community but not into these violent institutions because violence will cause more violence again and again. And so when children become adults, the violence will be a lot worse. This is what sociologists call a wicked problem. Nobody wants to be told this because it's it's politically a non-starter. This notion that you are going to find some silver bullet for you know, a young person that's 16, 17, that is chronically offending, that is heavily involved in, you know, deviant subcultures, older friends for whom those people have become their primary source of praise, you get very, very low return on your investment by that point. The return on the investment is upstream. It's always upstream. We've known this for 50 years. This isn't a problem of knowing what to do. This is much more inherently a political problem. We believe that institutions work. And they don't. Prison institutions, you know, locking people up in cages or, or whatever you want to call them, particularly young children, I mean, what do you expect is going to happen? That they're going to, you know, going to walk out of there as model citizens? 
and particularly for children. I mean, you know, we've had so many reports of brutality. We just have this belief that you can reform an institution and it'll work properly. It hasn't worked properly for, you know, 200 years. Why is it, it going to work properly now? Why do you think we can't let go of that? Yeah, it's deeply in, embedded that that's, that's how you respond to these issues, that you, you know, you need a prison. It needs an approach that doesn't involve institutionalisation, doesn't involve the prison. Not that you don't respond to kids that are in need of support or families that are in need of support, but you don't do it through a criminalisation process. Having these power relationships in institutions is bad enough for adults, but, you know, what it leads to in this power disparities between children in institutions is just a disaster and always has been. Thanks to all the guests in today's program. Christopher Cunneen is Professor of Criminology at the Jumbunna Institute for Indigenous Education at UTS. Keith Hamburger, a former Director of Queensland Corrective Services. William Wood is a Senior Lecturer in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Griffith University. Catherine Hayes is CEO of the Youth Advocacy Centre. Debbie Kilroy runs Sisters Inside and Daniel McAleer is Executive Director of the Centre on Juvenile and Criminal Justice in San Francisco. This week's Rear Vision was produced by me, Jen Leake, for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.